We've made our way this morning to the church at Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And let us hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to begin this morning with a question a question that it's easy to give an answer to. It's easy just to hear it and, and to spout out your answer. But it's difficult to give the answer in terms of your lifestyle day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. But the question is simply this. Whose church is this? Whose church is this? You see, the motivation for listening to what Christ says to these seven churches in Revelation 2 and chapter 3 really does flow from how you answer that question. How you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ begins right here with this question. Whose church is this? It's not our church. I think that's probably the quick answer that we would quickly respond with. It's not our church, and we know that on paper but we can find that really hard to get through our heads sometimes. Because it's Christ's church, that means we have no right to lift up anything, any ideal, any goal, any emphasis, any plan, anything, and raise it up as a competitor to Jesus Christ. No right to, to introduce anything that may undermine Jesus Christ and His kingship over his church. Because one of the things we see all throughout the New Testament is there's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ as king. And he's the one who plants his churches. 
He's the one who is the bride, or the church is the bride of Christ. The church is made up of children of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ who love Jesus supremely. That is what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? It is not just anyone who, who, who says the right words or, or does this or does that. Out of, it's out of the overflow of a heart that loves Christ supremely that then says those words that are true believers. And everything we do in response to Revelation chapter 2 really is a demonstration of what you really think about who owns the church. Here we are now on the fourth of these churches. And the question I have to ask myself and you have to ask yourself is, what have you done with what Christ has spoken to us? I've said from the beginning of these letters to the seven churches, one, yes, they are addressed to seven specific churches, but they are written universally for all Christians, all people in all places, at all times, in all circumstances. And secondly, the goal of these letters is not morality, is not to read these letters, and this is the way it tends to be handled. What are the strengths of these churches? What are the weaknesses of these churches? And then compare them to our church. And we want to do the strengths and we want to make sure we avoid the weaknesses. The purpose of these letters is exactly what John's purpose is from chapter 1 to the very end of the book. It is to exalt Jesus Christ as the all-glorious, all-sufficient, all-authoritative king over his church. We're going through a study of the book of Revelation but really, I feel like all we've done, and I say all we've done, I don't mean that uh, to, to, to undermine this, but what we're really doing is just looking at the glory of the exalted Christ in the last book of the Bible. And so even as we're looking at Christ's letter to the church at Thyatira, we're not really looking at the church at Thyatira. We're not trying to figure out what are its strengths. All right, what's he talking about here? What are its weaknesses? What's he talking about there? Because we want to make sure we're, what we're doing here is we want to see the glory of Christ. So what is the glory of Christ here in this letter to the church at Thyatira? Well, just like the rest of the letters, Jesus begins with a self-description of himself in the opening lines of the letter. And this self-description always speaks to certain facets of his glory, of his greatness, and they're all drawn from that vision that John had in chapter 1, that glorious vision. You can go back and look, and in each of the churches, you can find what Jesus says about himself and introducing himself, and you will find it as a quote from chapter 1. It's appropriate to that church and the needs of that church. And here, Jesus describes himself in verse 18 as the one having eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's the glory of our king, the king of his church. Eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. These are tremendously significant descriptions. He calls himself in verse 18, the son of God, that these are the words of the son of God. There he's just simply speaking to his own naked authority over his church. Thyatira is his church. 
It's not the people. It's not the pastors. not the elders. It's his church. He bought it. He paid for it with blood. And he's the one who's building it. He's the one who has a purpose for it. And he's the one who has the authority to speak to it with all authority in heaven and earth. These are the words of the Son of God. He goes on to say, who has eyes like a flame of fire? Eyes that penetrate through every conceivable facade. Eyes that penetrate through every defense that I might be able to make to you. Or you might be able to make to me. Every facade, well, the reason I'm not where I need to be is this. I blame this person, that person, this situation, that context. That may work with us. But Jesus says, I have eyes of fire, like a flame of fire that penetrate to the root of the heart. And when the Lord Jesus' eyes are upon you and me, you know. He sees right through you. He's what we see in verse 23. The one who searches mind and heart. He's the one who knows all things and nothing in my life is hidden from his gaze. No no motivation, no desire, no purpose. Even those things that I had from myself are not hidden from him. And these words are from the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. His feet are marching all through His church. The imagery we've seen here in the book of Revelation that Christ is a king who's present with His church. He's present with us in whatever we're going through this morning. It may feel like we're alone. It may feel like nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody acknowledges. That's a lie. That's poor theology. That's a poor understanding of our King. He is present in the lives of His people this morning, this past week, when we leave here today. He's marching all through His, his church, and not just His church. He's marching all through human history, bringing to an end everything that God has foreordained from before the foundation of the world that he's been unraveling since the book of Genesis that will reach its appointed end in Jesus Christ. He is marching through all of human history, bringing everything together to lay it down at the Father's feet. Even when we get to Revelation 17, 17, if you haven't gone to look at that yet, go look at it this afternoon. Even the enemies of our king who think that they are strategizing to defeat him, there Jesus says... <laughs> Their strategies to defeat me are exactly how I intend their strategies to go to accomplish my eternal purposes from before the foundation. Or they are pawns in my hand. This is our king whose feet are like burnished bronze, marching through his churches, marching through history. They're not feet of clay that are going to stumble, that are going to melt, that are, that are not going to be able to, to make it to the end. They're burnished bronze. And this is the glory of our everlasting king, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the king who is looking into the church at Thyatira, his church. 
the church that he cares for, the church that he's ruling, the church that he's dealing with, the church that he's pruning, the church that he's, he's investing in. And because this king is marching through his church and because he has eyes of flames of fire, as we've seen in previous churches, he's, he's got some hard things he's going to have to say to them. But how wonderful that the king who sees into his church with eyes like flames of fire sees not only the things that need pruning, he also sees and is able to appreciate the wonderful things that he sees. Verse 19. Our king says to his church, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is a magnificent commendation because here's, here's just a couple things about Thyatira. Last week we were in Pergamum. You remember kind of it was a commercial center, a lot of trade guilds, and, and, and a lot of the success of your trade was tied to the false gods. And if you're going to be successful as a, in, in your business, you had to at least plug in to these trade guilds. And if you were going to be a member of those trade guilds, you had to play by the trade guild rules, which meant worshiping their usually fertility gods and fertility goddesses. Why the fertility gods? Because they're about what? Multiplication. Multiplying children, multiplying your profits, multiplying your resources. So you had to be part of it. And so it was very difficult for Christians to engage in commerce in the city, both of Pergamum. And the same thing is happening in Thyatira. It's difficult for Christians to, to plug in to commerce in the city without being a part of that organization because, man, they're going to go broke. They're not going to be able to feed their families. And so there's a lot of pressure on the Christians to, the word from last week, compromise. To compromise their faith. And, and maybe to, in their minds, draw a line in the sand and say, well, I'll go this far, but no further. To which Jesus addresses such compromise in the church at Pergamum. Very similar things were happening here in Thyatira. It was a commercial city, and most of the people were involved in a trade guild. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, we're introduced to a specific woman who was most likely part of one of those trade guilds. A seller of fine purple Lydia. Lydia was from Thyatira. And no doubt she would have been part of the linen trade guild. And let me tell you why these words are so glorious to the church at Thyatira, who's living in that context. That our everlasting, eternal God knows your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Here's why. It's because when compared to some of the other cities we've looked at, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, even some of the others, what sets Thyatira apart is this. It wasn't even on the same scale. It was completely unremarkable in relation to all these other cities and all these other churches. In fact, it was so unremarkable that it is likely that even as these letters were being circulated to the churches and they were being read, and the letter to the church at Ephesus and, and, and Smyrna and Pergamum were being read to the churches, that when it was read and to the church at Thyatira, it is most likely there would have been people in the congregation nudging somebody, 
Who? There's a church there? We didn't even know. It was that unremarkable. That's not me trying to create. This is kind of the testimony through church history. That it, was, it, it would be to parallel it. If these were modern day's letter, letters, uh, the letter written to Saddleback Church in California and to um, Grace Community Church where MacArthur preaches in California and to Willow Creek Community Church in Illinois and to Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis and then to Covenant Life Church in Olive Branch. Which one of those just doesn't seem to fit? Thyatira was an incredibly unremarkable church in a very unremarkable town. In fact, one commentator described it this way. The letter to the church of Thyatira is the longest and most difficult of the letters to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of all the cities. And to this unremarkable church that most probably had no idea was even in existence... Jesus says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's magnificent. That's glorious. In a world today where individually and corporately we tend to always compare ourselves to other, other beings and other things, and, and if we don't measure up, we feel inadequate, unremarkable, insignificant. We tie our identity and our worth to how we measure up to other things instead of Christ. It's Christ here who says, but I know you belong to me. You're my people. And how the, the words that Jesus has used to describe them is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 13, right? You have the, the, the three great virtues of the, the Christian life there, faith and hope and love, and you, you have those on display here in the church at Thyatira. The church at Thyatira, we're told here, they sought to exalt the Lord Jesus by loving him supremely. I know your love, Jesus says. I hope we're far enough now into these letters and into the, our understanding of the gospel that's talking about love for Jesus, your love for him. I know how deeply and richly you love Jesus supremely. And it has to be that. Think about the contrast with the church at Ephesus. Because they too had works and deeds, but Jesus says, I have this against you. You have lost your love for me. You're doing all these things in my name, but right here there's no love and affection for me. But church at Thyatira, oh man, I... I see your love and your supreme love for me. And, and that you, you seek to bring the person and work of Jesus Christ to bear upon your lives by grace, to live by faith. I see your, your faith, your faith in the King. And that although you're living in a, in, in a very unremarkable town, but you, you're facing all the troubles with the trade guilds and, and the temptation to compromise and the temptation to idolatry and you got this Jezebel individual here in your church, but nonetheless, I see your, your, your love for Jesus Christ, his sufficiency, his all-glorious person, and you're seeking to, to bring him down and to grip him into your lives, what you're going through, and to live by faith upon him in spite of your circumstances. And your patient endurance, I, I see that you're, you're clinging with every breath that you've got. You're living joyfully in all circumstances. No life has not been easy. Yes, you're suffering. 
Yes, you, there's martyrdom. Yes, physically you're ailing. Yes, there's all kinds of, of temptations that you're dealing with inside, but oh my goodness, you're clinging to Jesus joyfully. He who is the first and the last and the one who's sovereign over all things. And, and notice, it's not just your, your, your love for Jesus, faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus, service to Jesus, just in, in the present. Notice he says, these are things that are growing and spreading and increasing. He says, and that your latter works exceed the first. Don't turn that into morality. Turn that into their affections, their supreme love for Jesus. It hasn't even reached its pinnacle yet. You're still growing in your love for Jesus. No matter how mature you are, how old you are, how many years you've been walking with the Lord, you're still growing to see newer and fresher facets of the greatness of Christ, and your love for Him is growing deeper by the day. Your faith in the, the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ, it's increasing. You haven't become satisfied with your basic fundamental knowledge of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as significant and foundational as that is, but you continue to, to meditate richly and deeply upon Christ's person, His atoning work, who He is and His exaltation at the right hand of the Father, sovereign over the universe. And you're bringing that to bear in increasing ways. And though you yourself may be suffering more and more and more and more and darker and deeper, Christ is becoming more sufficient and more glorious and more supreme. And you're finding more joy. You're clinging to him in richer ways than even you did at the beginning. If any of the Christians at Thyatira, the church at Thyatira, were reflecting upon their own experiences, their own church, they would say something like this. Hey, listen, we know we're not remarkable. We know that on the roadmap of churches, people are going to drive right by us. We realize that nobody really knows who we are. But that's not what our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and what he is doing in us, our king. And what he's doing in our souls, in our hearts. How he's growing us to see that the fruit of this ministry in Thyatira is a deeper devotion to Christ. To who he is. To, to looking at the beauty of him and the fruit of a ministry of looking unto Jesus is increasing our disposition of love for Jesus our faith in Jesus, our joyful endurance with Jesus, trusting in Jesus in all things and in our service to Jesus, which is just the overflow of all of these things to Jesus. That this would be true of every church and of us. How wonderful it is that the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and sees to the root of the heart of all things, sees affection for Jesus, love for Jesus, faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus, service for Jesus, growing in the congregation. You can only imagine uh, these words would have had to have been like sweet honey a balm to their soul. To hear the Lord say these words. 
as we continue on, I do want to draw your attention that Christ fits that whole commendation into one verse. And I think that's significant. Because then he takes the next four verses in order to analyze a, a problem, a sinister growth in the life of this church. And I was kind of struck by that this week. Because in our day-to-day, you know, we're, we, we, we want to, I mean, we don't, don't focus so much energy on the negative, you know, on the positive. And here we see, it's, it's almost like a surgeon, a physician, I think. Think about it this way. When you go to see your doctor, and you're going for a test, and they come in for a moment, and they, they're, they're going through their charts, and they may say, say, say something, something like this, you know, sir or madam, whoever. Uh, listen, I'm looking over your chart here. Blood pressure looks good. Heart looks good. Uh, your, your weight looks good. All your vitals are, are really looking good. But then, if there's a but, he's going to spend the rest of his time with you focusing upon the negative, right? He's going to kind of rush through, check, 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 check. All right, but here's a problem. And I need to talk to you about this problem. And I need to schedule you with a surgeon to come in and to, we got to get this thing out, this, this deadly growth that's inside of you. We've got to cut it out, otherwise it will, it's capable of destroying you of destroying your whole life, of killing you. Yes, we've got all these other wonderful signs of life, but there is something that needs to be dealt with. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. For all these wonderful things, their love for Jesus, their devotion to Christ, their affections for Him, their life of faith. He says, but you are in spiritual danger. Notice the words there in verse 20. But I have this against you. Now, what is it he has against them? It's their tolerance. Their tolerance. They have a level of toleration with something that's in their midst, and it's not a good thing. Which you have to wrestle for a moment with, well, isn't tolerance by and large a good thing? To which I would say it can be. There is a context where tolerance is a good thing. We are exhorted in Scripture to forbear with one another, right? To be patient with one another. To, put it another way, to put up with one another's faults. And the fact of the matter is, no church would be able to exist as a fellowship if we did not, in some sense, tolerate one another. Am I right? I have faults. You may have some. We all do. In that context, biblically, we're called to be tolerant of one another, but it depends on what we are tolerant of. Tolerance can be a virtue when it's the expression of a heart of mercy, a heart of compassion, a heart of love, a heart of understanding, a heart that understands I'm not the center of the universe. It's not really all about me. And even though I have my own priorities, my own agendas, my own wants, my own desires, I understand that this person or these people or whatever are not me. They're not, and, and I'm going to humble myself. In that situation, that's good. But tolerance can be a vice. 
when it's the tolerance of a Jezebel in the congregation. And that's what we have here. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat foods sacrificed to idols. So it begs the question, who is this Jezebel? Well, it's safe to say her name's not really Jezebel. This is not someone named that. It's clear that Jesus here is alluding to the Old Testament story of Elijah and his confrontation with King Ahab and the woman who stood beside King Ahab, sometimes in front of King Ahab, Jezebel, who led the people of God into compromise. There's a lot of parallel between the church at Thyatira and Pergamum that we looked at last week. Jezebel, who, who led the people of God into compromise and sin and to deny God's power and to die, deny God's covenant faithfulness. She's a, a figure, a type. So we want to know who this Jezebel here in the church at Thyatira is. We don't know her, her absolute identity. They would have known, but we don't. She's, all we know is she's a Jezebel type who was leading the people of God away from their king away from the one to whom the church belonged and therefore leading them into compromise. We can say a few things about this woman. It's obvious she was a charismatic figure in the life of the church, probably the type of woman that you would notice, the type of woman who manifested a, a charismatic, powerful, magnetic personality probably had a, a certain degree of ability and, and talent, who we know people like this, just when they open their mouths, they just, they draw people to them. There's just something about them, their personality, their comic relief, their, their whatever it is. But that's how this woman was, and she was engaged in teaching there in the church at Thyatira. So somehow she had gained a voice in this church. And her influence in this church was hostile to Christ. Look at what she claims for herself in verse 20. She calls herself a prophetess. Now, what's a prophetess? It's a prophet or a prophetess. It's someone who says, thus says the Lord. It's someone who stands before a people and says, I've got a word from the Lord today. It's somebody who stands before the church. God has spoken to me. The Spirit of God this week spoke to me. And I've got something to tell to you. Now we have prophets in the Bible. But the message that they give is they preface it, thus says the Lord and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. She would say things like this. And if I understand the text around it, she would say, I want you to get hold of the deep things of God. I've got knowledge. God has spoken to me about the deep things of God. You, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to my teaching. Does that sound familiar to us in our own day? Listen, you, you're, you're, you go to church, that's great, and your church preaches Jesus and Christ alone and no, comp no competitors to Christ, and He alone is sufficient, and He is the answer to all your problems. But if you really want to go deep, 
let me talk to you about some things. I've got some wisdom, God-given wisdom. I've got experience, God-given experience. And I can come in and, and supplement what you're getting. Come, listen to me. Come, read my books. Come, come to my seminar. Come, I'm speaking at this church on this date. Come and, and hear me. Downplaying the regular life of the Christocentric, Christ-exalting ministry of the enoughness of Christ, which is what the true church of Jesus Christ gathers to do every Lord's Day. To say Christ is enough, Christ alone to gather together to pray and to worship and to, to hear the preaching of the word. The prophetess says, that's great. It's just superficial. It's not enough. I can point you to the deep things of God. And as you might expect, zealous, well-intending Christians who either maybe haven't been well taught or are still just young in their faith would be drawn to that. They're hungry. They're eager. They're earnest. Maybe they're tired. Uh, when I'm in the church of Thyatira, it just feels so unremarkable. And the thought of something a little more, I, I, need, I need to go outside, I need to go get more. Do you see how she, she has an influence? She, she has a draw, a magnetism? And the problem here, Jesus is saying, there's this influence in the church that is teaching what she likes to call the deep things of God, the above and beyond Christ. But Christ himself puts brackets and an exclamation point on that, and he calls it the deep things of Satan. Verse 24. The deep things of Satan. Because going back to Genesis, what Satan's always trying to do is undermine the glory, the excellency, the majesty, the sufficiency, the enoughness of Jesus. Trying to undermine and to take our eyes off of him. What was it that Jesus saw that made him realize that? Well, a few things. Jezebel demonstrates herself to be self-taught rather than Bible-taught, and we know that. Self-taught because the Bible teaches everything from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus Christ. And he is the answer to our every fundamental need. He is the answer to our every blossoming need that draw, comes out of our fundamental needs. The objective message of the Bible has always been Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, you have the writer of Hebrews saying, Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God did speak to our fathers by the prophets. Oh, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Christ, God himself said that I, I do still speak today. I do have a prophet. And it's Christ. And there won't be another. There won't be another. When, when your pastor stands in front of you, your elders, your leaders, whoever, whoever in, in, in your circle stands before you, they are not 
a prophet in the sense of new revelation. They better be faithful prophets in that Christ is the prophet, Christ is the content of the message of the prophet, and everything they say should point to Christ. And the application is Christ. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified. Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Him we proclaim. And then he goes on to say, and oh, by the way, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, the wisdom of the world, their own experiences, their own kind of ingenuity. See to it no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't let somebody hypnotize you with their even religious jargon. Be discerning. Be discerning if it's not Christ. It's the philosophy. It's the wisdom. It's the deep things of Satan. And so sufficient is Jesus for our every situation in life that again, the Author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, the Christian life, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Run this race with all of your suffering, with all of your afflictions, with all the hardships, with the good and the bad, looking to Jesus. Because he is the Christian life. He is what the Bible is about. He is God's revelation to you and I in all of our needs. And it's obvious by what Jezebel was, her influence was. That wasn't her message. She was self-taught, not Bible-taught. She was self-appointed, not church-appointed. She called herself a prophetess. She said, God, God spoke to me. God gave me a message. I'm the mouthpiece of his authority. And she was self-opinionated rather than submissive. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Meaning, there were people in the church who were aware of her influence. The elders, the leaders had approached her and addressed this. And yet, I'm guessing the conversation probably went something like this. Nobody speaks to me like that. I'm a prophetess of Almighty God. I'm the one with authority here. You don't call me to repentance. You don't talk to me like that. You see, she wasn't submissive to God himself. She had her own opinions on her worth, her value, and her place in the kingdom of God. And instead of repenting, verse 21, but she refuses to repent. Instead of repenting, she hardened her heart against that ministry that Christ had provided in the church. And we have a... a a lingo we use today, the punishment should fit the crime. That's something we say today. Though. But biblically, it goes the other way around. 
It's the nature of the punishment that tells you just how serious the crime is. And notice what Jesus says in verse 22. Here's the seriousness of her crime. The seriousness of turning hearts away from Jesus as the all-glorious, all-sufficient, exalted, majestic God that he is. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. The king who walks among his church with eyes of flaming fire and sees beyond our words and our externals to the root of the heart. Here is speaking to her. I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her. Here he's talking about spiritual adultery. Kind of like we see in the Old Testament. Israel's adultery from God. They turn from God to others. Those who, who turn from Christ to other things, who try to supplement Christ, who try to add to Christ, or turn away from Christ altogether. Those who commit spiritual adultery with her, I will throw into a great tribulation. I have no idea what that means. Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Most likely that's not biological children. That is her children who have been influenced by her teaching. Those who have followed her ways. Those who have the deep things of Satan. And although it may be packaged in religion and Christianity. It has undermined Christ. And here Christ is saying, I'm going to take care of this woman. Throughout church history, there are testimonies of problems in churches where things get ugly. Maybe you've been in a church in the past. I, I'm not going to stand here and say that I have. But I've heard stories of things get ugly. And there's a real battle brewing between personalities in the church. And it's over real fundamental issues. Not something secondary, not something tertiary. Something really significant. Something fundamental to the gospel. And you've got these combatants going at it. And then there's a testimony of, from the faithful one of God who is trying to do things the right way saying, can't explain it. God just dealt with the situation. Meaning, they died. The opposition died. And that's kind of the picture he's painting here. The measure of Jezebel's sin is not seen in just the statement, well, false teaching's bad. That's kind of how we tend to handle it. False teaching, that's a bad thing. We don't want that in our church. The measure of this woman's sin is seen in what Jesus says he's going to do to protect his church. And in fact, he's going to do something so significant. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead. So significant, and all the churches will know. Everyone's going to hear about it. And they're going to know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. Some may be wondering this morning, 
Why so severe? Why is Jesus so severe? I mean, Jezebel, where's grace here? Where is mercy here? Where is love here toward Jezebel? I think as Christians, we find it difficult to, to figure out. In some situations, we see more grace. In some situations like this, we see immediate judgment. How do we apply that? How do we appropriate that? How do I know that this is not overly harsh by the Lord? Let's frame it this way. Parents. If you know someone is intending to molest your children, is it sinful intolerance that you are going to do everything in your power to put a stop to it? Is that, is that intolerant of you? Husbands, you see somebody seducing your wife away from you, and your wife doesn't see it but it's very clear an outsider is trying to draw your wife away from you, does not love demand that with all your heart you're going to do everything to deliver her from that tempter? You see, there are occasions where love, if it's not 100% intolerant, it's not love. There are situations where that exists. Now, I use those examples because... I go back to my original question this morning. Whose church are we? To which the easy answer is, well, we belong to Jesus Christ, the King. And Jesus is the father of his children. And he is the husband of his bride. And if we are not going to let anyone harm our physical children or our brides in time, do we think for a second that Christ is going to let anyone adversely influence his children and his bride away from his all-sufficient enough? But notice, we come then to a wonderful word of close for this church. And though the physician here spent more time in verses 20 through 23 than he did in verse 19, like a physician, he's dealing with, there's a, there's a growth here that needs to be dealt with. There's an influence, uh, an influence of Satan that's turning you away from Christ that, that must be dealt with. But by my count, verses 24 through 25, 29, this is an even longer section. And notice what he says in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other I place no further burden on you. It's kind of an illusion in Acts 15 where Paul says, we're not going to put any further burdens on the Gentiles. Or I think more clearly, Jesus' own words in reference to himself, come to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest for my burden is light. I'm not going to put a burden on you. Come to Christ 
Where there's not a burden I'm putting on you. Hold on to me because I'm holding on to you. And he gives them this great promise in verse 26 that they will share in his authority over the nations as the gospel goes forth from Thyatira to, the, to Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to the ends of the earth. They're going to see, this is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2 in verse 26 and 27 where the father says to his son, you ask of me when I will give you the nations for your inheritance. That's Psalm 2. And Jesus here is claiming that inheritance, that the world is his. And here the promise is, Thyatira, if you persevere clinging to Jesus to the end, you share in that. You share in Christ's kingdom. You share in his authority and his rule over all things. And most beautifully of all, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Man, it's so easy to just kind of run past that and kind of, all right, I get a star. Maybe a star named after me. No. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see John unveils that the morning star is Christ himself. It's Christ himself. He promises here, you cling to me, you persevere to the end, and I will give you myself. And that's why this letter ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You cling to the end. You persevere to the end. Clinging to Jesus, holding to Jesus, even when the influences of the world are, are tempting you and they're so creative in doing so. They package it so marvelously that it doesn't look sinister. It doesn't look dangerous. But if you cling to Christ alone to the end, I will give you myself. Oh, he who has an ear, please let him hear. Which begs the question, what have you heard this morning? What has the Lord said through His Word to encourage you, to chastise you, to bless you? I pray that I'm not a Jezebel influence in this church. I pray we don't have a Jezebel influence in this church. I'm not aware of one externally. But do we recognize that even in our own personal lives, there might be a Jezebel in our midst right here? That there can be a Jezebel in our hearts. An influence, a temptation in our own hearts, even this morning. To turn away from our king. An influence that this day I've woken up and I've asked myself, what am I going to do today? When we came to Christ, we lost the right to ask that question. Our life is not our own. Again, whose church is this? Is there an influence in our heart that has said, I'm going to decide what my will is today and what I'm going to do? 
Is there a Jezebel influence that is influencing others around you? Maybe just like, maybe it's well-intended. Maybe, maybe you've packaged it as it's religious, it's Christianity, it's, it's, it is about Jesus. But even we can't trust our own hearts that maybe it's become Jesus plus something else. And even with good intentions, you're influencing people away from Christ. That's what Jezebel was doing. Have we become tolerant of the teaching of Jezebel so much and it's exerted so much influence over us that even we have lost perspective of the enoughness of Jesus? That even when we hear that or we hear a message like this, we kind of shrug our shoulders and think, yeah, but that's an extreme. Here's a situation and there needs to be more. Coming up, Life Church, I ask you, as I have to ask myself, whose church is this? It's so easy to say it's Jesus's. It just slides right off the lips. But the question is, where we sit this morning or where I stand this morning, does he have complete ownership of our affections? We're entering into the Passion Week. This is Palm Sunday. We're heading towards Good Friday. We're on that day our king purchased us. He purchased our soul, he, all of us, our heart, our affections, our minds, our body, at the high cost of his own blood. And this time next week we'll be celebrating his resurrection where he conquered every enemy, every idol, every Jezebel, our sin nature. And now our king is alive seated at the right hand of the throne of God, sovereign, sufficient in all glorious excellencies. And this morning, that risen almighty king looks upon us with eyes of flaming fire, seeing to the roots of our hearts Does he see a Jezebel influence there? If so, then our king says to us exactly what he said to Jezebel. Repent. I give you opportunity to repent. And like we spent time talking about last week, repentance it's such an important word. It tends to get kind of made into a phrase of words that we throw in there. And I'm not suggesting the words are unimportant. But the power of those words is forever eternally tied to what's in the heart from where they come. And repentance is about a return. Repentance is person-oriented. We repent because we have turned from a person. We have turned from a king. We have turned from the one who purchased us with his blood. And repentance means to return to your king. Return to the one that 
it so easily slides off the lips. Who owns you? Well, Jesus does. But in your heart, is that, does he have ownership of you? If not, if there's that Jezebel influence, return to your king. Return to him. Not to rules. Not to a bunch of framework of things. That was the whole situation last week in, in Pergamum, right? Return to a person. Return to him. And he promises you cling to him. He will give you himself forever. I don't know what's in your heart this morning. I've got to discern my own. But he who has an ear, let him hear.